Hi all and welcome to the Real Deal Film Talk podcast. I'm your host Paul Whelan and this is the show. The reason I have started this podcast is a simple one. I love film. I've always loved film and I'm truly fascinated by all aspects of the filmmaking process. I myself have a degree in film. I've worked on many sets. Also, I have written and directed a number of short films. And now I wish to share my love and adulation for the craft that is film. But in this podcast, I will look to talk through the many facets of the film industry, chat about a variety of different films, what it took for them to be made, inside stories from cast and crew, and shed a light on many other things all involved with film. So sit back, relax, and let's get to it. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. In my last episode, I was talking about the history of horror as it was Halloween. So this time around, I'm going to focus on more Christmassy films. However, I will be focusing on probably some less obvious Christmas films. Uh, I'm going to share some interesting background stories about these films and how they got made. Discuss what made these films so special and how these are still a lot of people's go-to festive flicks. episode I'm going to focus on one film in particular I want to talk about a film that is so important in my childhood and so many other people's childhood and that film is Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas Nightmare Before Christmas is the story of Jack Skellington, the king of Halloween Town, who has become tired of Halloween and aches for something new. While out walking one day, he stumbles across a door leading to Christmas Town. While in Christmas Town, he discovers something bold and something new, something he's never seen before, and he becomes obsessed and tries to bring this to Halloween Town. He then proceeds to ruin Christmas and also save Christmas for everyone. The film itself is stop motion and is actually the first stop motion feature film ever. And although its title is now Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, he did not actually direct it. Tim Tim Burton didn't direct the film because he was actually in the midst of filming uh, Batman Returns. So he reached out and actually got a good friend of his, Henry Selick, take over the reins. Selick's previous experience really was only making stop motion and animation MTV uh, ads he uh, he knew Tim Burton very well and they worked together a long time ago and that's why Burton hired him I suppose as director because he, he knew he could trust him and he knew he had experience working with stop motion even though he did not direct it the story did come from the mind of Tim Burton Burton came up with the idea way back when he was working as an animator for Disney and while at Disney is when he actually met a lot of 
the creative team that he would work with on his later projects. And Tim Burton is one of them directors who who does like to um, work again and again with the same people. He can be accused of probably overdoing it sometimes, but you know, he did have great success with it. This film had so many problems right from the get-go. First off, when Tim Burton came up with the idea, he was a junior animator at Disney and he went up to the head executives with artwork, with the idea, explained the whole story of the film and the Disney executives just did not get it. They didn't understand it and they didn't think that it would fit with their brand. Although many people at Disney now believe that Walt Disney, if he had been around, he would have tried to find a way to make this work. Burton wouldn't last at Disney. It was only there two years in the 1980s, but that was a pivotal moment in his career because he met a lot of the people he would then go on to forge great partnerships and friendships with and that would help him a lot in his career. Went on to find himself great success as a film director. He directed a lot of animation, short films, but really the big moment for him was when he was hired by Paul Rubin, uh, also known as Pee Wee Herman, uh, to direct Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which doesn't seem like a very Burton-esque uh, movie, but he did do it. Paul Rubin had a, an amazing eye for talent and, and picking just picking the right people. So he picked Burton to make uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. But not only that, Paul Rubin also decided he wanted the lead singer of the band Oingo Boingo, mad name, to score the film. And um, a lot of people might like shrug their shoulders or whatever and not have heard of Oingo Boingo. I have to admit, I've never heard of them either up until uh, not too long ago. But that singer was actually Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman, if you're familiar with him, has done almost I'd say every Tim Burton movie score ever he also scored um, he came up with the theme song for The Simpsons he did the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies he did the Justice League movie he did Tim Burton's Batman Batman Returns obviously he did Nightmare Before Christmas Danny Elfman he's definitely one of the most iconic film composers ever and has made some of the most iconic film songs ever. It's actually really funny because when Elfman got the call to make the film, to do the score for the film, he really didn't want to do it. He told his manager to tell him no and his manager said, no, you tell them no. And he attributes his entire life to two words. He just said, F it and I'll do it. So we have those two words to thank for one of the most genius composers of all time. And then after Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which was 1985, moved on to a new project that would also help shape what would then become A Nightmare Before Christmas. His 1988 hit film, Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, you could say, is probably the first movie where you really see Burton's sensibilities and his real his real flair for atmosphere and also his his unique take on the world. Beetlejuice was then followed swiftly by Batman starring Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson which is a fantastic film. Then straight away the year after that he had Edward Scissorhands capping off his first movie outing with Johnny Depp. Edward 
scissor hand also fits into how a nightmare before Christmas made and how it came to be. Due to the huge success he had from those three movies, he still had a feeling in him that he, he wanted to make The Nightmare Before Christmas. So he went back to Disney and he offered to buy back the rights to his drawings, original artwork and the story. And Disney, when one of the biggest directors in the world come knocking at your door, what was it they were going to do? So they said, no, do you know what? Make it with us and you'll have full control. So Burton decided, yeah, I will make it with you. But there was a little hiccup. He actually was just after signing a new contract with Warner Brothers to make the Batman sequel. And just like Disney, Warner Brothers had decided they would give him full autonomy on Batman. He could make the Batman film the way he wanted, without any interruptions from producers, from the studio, from marketing. It was going to be Tim Burton's Batman. So he leapt at that chance. And that is why he had to call in Henry Selleck. He then made some other calls to people he knew. So he called writer and author. Michael McDowell was the screenwriter for Beetlejuice. And he charged him with coming up with the script and screenplay for the film. An interesting decision was made. And that was to set up the studio where they would film and nightmare before christmas they would film that in the bay area in san francisco warner brothers and disney had their studios in burbank california and there's a reason behind this it did make commuting to the studio tough for tim burton because he was flying from california to san francisco but what it did also do that was positive was make it very very hard for disney to interrupt and spy and change the films because they were so far away. Disney did send a producer, one of their producers, to ensure the film would be made properly and appropriately. Uh, her name was Kathleen Gavin. But the great thing about Kathleen Gavin was, yes, yeah, she worked for Disney, but she believed in the project and she wanted the project to succeed. So she, she was a great person to have on their side. As they set up the studio in the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco, they're still waiting for the script. Michael McDowell has not sent anything. And, you know, they have a deadline. They have they have to start pre-production. They have to start storyboarding. They start have to start getting the materials together, making the models. They, they, they need to start and there's still no script. It's not... Not even like they could throw something together because stop motion is so time consuming and so difficult to do. If you're not familiar with stop motion, it's what it says on the tin. So basically what you're doing is you take a figurine you take a Barbie or an action man or whatever it is and you take a picture of them. Then you move their arm slightly, take another picture, slightly again, take another picture and you do this and this has to be done for every single movement in the film and with the nightmare before christmas the estimate they had over a hundred thousand shots for the film so you know the time was of the essence they needed to get going but it actually turned out still no sign of the script so with the time taken by danny elfman to the rescue danny elfman had a great idea he, he sat in the studio with timber and timber and told him the idea told him the story his mind how he saw it, 
and and Danny Elfman decided to start writing and creating music. So he started writing the songs, creating the songs. There was no script, no screenplay. He knew the basic idea of the film and he just started creating music. And he said he has never created music faster. He just he was just churning it out. And he said some of the songs were kind of autobiographical because of the changes he was going through in his life at the time. So he just started creating wonderful songs for them. But what this allowed was he would record them and send the demos then to Henry Selleck in San Francisco. And now the team can start building their sets. They can start creating the scenes. And the very first scene they did was What's This? Probably the most famous song from the film. What's This is when Jack first enters into uh, Christmas Town. And while the, these guys are creating these fantastic scenes and images, there's still no sign of McDowell's script. Turned out, um, McDowell actually had a big drug problem, um, cocaine, and he wasn't actually writing. He he was off doing other things. Rumor has it, he even went as far as formatting some of the lyrics from Danny Elfman's music to try and pass it off as his dialogue, which wasn't good but he was eventually fired what are the the team to do now this is crazy they need a script writer but as chance would have it the woman who Danny Elfman was living with at the time his girlfriend uh, Caroline Thompson just happened to be a screenwriter not only that she happened to be screenwriter of Edward Scissorhands she had been sitting in the house the entire time while Danny Elfman had been creating these songs, uh, playing them for her. She knew the story already before she even sat down at the at the typewriter, which obviously saved a lot of time. So Caroline was hired. She started to fit the story around the songs. Usually, you know, usually the songs fit around the story. And she she just started to write. And Caroline brought a lot of extra stuff to the story. She she saw a lot of Danny in um, Jack Skellington, uh, a lot of the struggle he was going through at the time when he when he wanted a career change and and stuff like this. And also she wrote a really interesting, uh, flawed, broken character in Sally, played by Catherine O'Hara and Sally originally was supposed to be you know this Halloween pinup girl type thing but Caroline really just brought her down to earth uh, I think the, the phrase she used was matchstick girl she was just a normal everyday girl and it really gives a lot more heart and emotion to the film because of the delay that Michael McDowell caused the the team and because of shortages and every film has budgetary problems but this movie needed a bigger budget so the producer Kathleen Gavin remember she worked for Disney had an idea really really clever idea what she did was she took the movie as it was at that point back to California to show the executives at Disney so she screened it for them she screened the scenes that they had any of the scenes that they didn't have which would have been quite a lot 
uh, were storyboards. Um, if you don't know what a storyboard is, it's actually just drawings of how the scene should look and what should happen. Um, so she showed the she showed the movie, completed movie with the storyboards and some of the actual scenes, and the executives loved it. They absolutely loved it. This movie that you just watched cost twenty four million, not eighteen million. The budget you gave me this cost twenty four million. So you have a choice. We can cut out this scene, this scene, this scene, this scene, uh, and we'll make up for the 18 million. Or you keep them in and you give us the extra 6 million. It was a very short debate. The executives decided, you know, if you took out any of these particular scenes that they were suggesting to take out, um, the movie would not work. So they got the six extra 6 million and they, they got to go ahead with the film. They had their actors. Uh, Danny Elfman, because he became so attached to Jack and his struggle and the, the problems that he was facing, he felt very strongly about it. He was the singer of Jack's songs and he did a fantastic job, but he also was hired as Jack's voice. When they reviewed the footage with Danny Elfman doing the voice, they they just they felt he was a bit wooden, a bit stiff. He wasn't really an actor. He was a singer. So they needed to bring in someone else to play Jack's speaking roles, which Danny Elfman didn't really appreciate. He had to swallow a lot of pride, he said. Um, and what made it worse was Tim Burton didn't actually tell him himself. He asked Caroline, his girlfriend, to break the news that he was no longer going to voice Jack, except for the singing parts. Why does nothing ever turn out like it should? Whoa! What the heck? I went and did my best, and by God, I really tasted something swell. That's right! And for a moment, why? I even touched the sky! And at least I left some stories they can tell I... As a true professional, Danny Elfman swallowed his pride, accepted it, and they moved on. The role of Jack would eventually go to actor Chris Sarandon, uh, who did a great job as well, must be said. Even with these many issues, you think uh, that would be the end of it, but it wasn't. Um, when they finally completed the film, they showed it to Disney and Disney just didn't know what it was. They they just asked, well, kids actually like this? So they had a, a viewing uh, for kids. They, they showed the completed film for kids and kids just, <laughs> they didn't like it. It just, it just didn't, didn't work for them for whatever reason. So they had a, a decision to make. Instead of giving it the usual Disney G rating for general. They decided to make a PG parental guidance. They decided to release it under Touchstone Production Company instead of Disney, which is their sister company. And they decided to slap Tim Burton's name on the title, saying Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, thinking with his success it might give them a bit more credit in the bank with the older kids you know the the, the preteens and the teenagers be more suited to them 
and you know it did work in a way um the nightmare before christmas went on to make 90 million at the box office which wasn't bad for a film made for 24 million but that's not all it, it went on to find a whole new life the nightmare before christmas is just become such a merchandise heavy film like there's so many characters and t-shirts figurines uh bobbleheads you name it from uh, the nightmare before christmas it's just such a sellable asset merchandise wise not only that i've seen so many people who have uh, Jack Skellington uh, tattoos, Sally tattoos, the famous uh, peak from the photo on the front of the cover. There's a lot of the Nightmare Before Christmas uh, merchandise and love out there. The, the movie was huge over in Asia and that's when they first actually discovered the, the figurines and they were like, wait a minute, this, this thing has a second life here. And the Nightmare Before Christmas is you know, it's a big part of so many people my age and probably older's childhood. Uh, I still remember the first time watching it. My um, sister showed it to me. We went to Tesco and we got ice pops. She was babysitting me and we watched it. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And the, the film still goes on today. I watched it recently enough. Um, I only watched it last week and I still love it. The songs are amazing. You know, the story's pretty funny. Characters are interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fun watch. And it's not bad for a film that started out with a poem written by a junior animator at Disney. So The Nightmare Before Christmas, I think, should be on everyone's watch list for this year. If you haven't seen it, I, definitely, I would definitely recommend watching it because it's just a fun family film. And de definitely give it a go. And we watched it with my daughter and she loved the songs and she was captivated by it great film so again i'm gonna leave you with a quote and this one is from mr tim burton himself one person's craziness is another person's reality and i tell you tim burton's craziness has become a fascinating entertaining enjoyable reality for all of us so i hope you enjoyed the episode i'm paul whelan thanks for listening Why, it's completely new! What's this? Must be a 